So in the, the Lord's economy, the Lord's timing, and the Lord's plan, Matt's going to be running, drilling wells and running nurseries in six countries. That's, that's what I gather from that. It sounds wonderful. He's actually walking into the auditorium with a baby in his arms. It's fantastic. It's wonderful. Well, Christmas uh, is a time when we tell a lot of stories. And uh, in our one-year Bible reading program, we've been in the Minor Prophets. So I thought this week, what would be better than to look at the extraordinarily Christmassy story of Jonah? So that's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to look at the prophet Jonah this morning. And it's a very short book. It's not often you can read a whole book in one sitting. I mean, it's actually most of the biblical books you can without much difficulty if you just sit down and do it. Uh, but this morning, I'm going to read the book, then just spend a little bit of time sort of working through some of the, the macro points of it. Okay, so uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to the book of Jonah. And we're going to read the entire book. Pretend as much as you can uh, that you haven't heard it before. This is the word of God. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone down below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Then the captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to, to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that this is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, 
And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah... This seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God 
provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die. Instead, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Before we uh, take some time to look at this story, uh, let's pray. Our Lord, we would ask that uh, you would guide us by your Spirit, help us to understand your Word. We confess that for many of us, this story of Jonah is the very familiar stuff of uh, Sunday school-type stories. And yet, Lord, we know that it is your Word, and it is useful for uh, growth and for feeding all of your children throughout all their lives. So we ask that you will help us to discern the message in the book, help us to form our theology of this book on the basis of what it actually communicates rather than on our preconceptions and presuppositions of its message, and help us to see your heart, help us to see your priorities, and even help us to see how this book truly does shed light on the gift of your Son. Search our hearts by your Spirit. Shine your light into every dark crevice. And lead us to be people who admire and appreciate and adore our Lord and Savior Jesus. For we ask it in his holy name. Amen. Now, if you have been uh, reading through the Bible in a year, you've just about one week left to finish up strong. I know that many of you are are right there, ready to do so. That's wonderful. Uh, I do know that some of you are uh, a day or two behind, um, and you can exchange the word day for week or month or whatever you want. Uh, I would encourage you still, just keep the bookmark, keep turning the pages. If it takes a year and three months, if it takes a year and if it takes two years, whatever you do to work through the Bible, sort of maybe at a pacing higher than ever before, that's a good thing. So, so don't give up. Don't be discouraged. Just, just keep working through. But if you have been right up to date, or you're just familiar with the Minor Prophets, you'll know that Jonah is unlike any of the other books for a variety of reasons. One, it's the only one that's narrative. Every other prophetic book, there's a little bit of narrative, but it's mainly the message. Here, in English, Jonah's entire message is 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. In Hebrew, it's five words. So when you work through the text, Jonah stands out 
as a total anomaly in terms of the entire prophetic corpus in Scripture. Now, this leads to some very interesting speculations that some people have, which uh, if you're interested in speculations, I'll talk to you about afterwards, but I won't get into uh, right now. Uh, Jonah also is very, very different because he's the only prophet who's even remotely successful. The one thing that's going on here all the time is that all of God's prophets are preaching and they're being told, uh, Isaiah is told, you're going to preach until the entire land is destroyed. 90% of the people are going to be destroyed. There's going to be a tenth remaining and then I'm going to destroy that tenth too. No one will listen to you. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. And none of the prophets are listened to. Except Jonah. Every other prophet actually does their job. Except Jonah. Jonah is the prophet who is most resistant to the message, and he's the one who is wildly successful. It's actually very interesting uh, to work through Jonah, not as an isolated book, but in comparison and contrast to all the other lives and careers of the prophets at this time. Also, of course, Jonah isn't speaking in Jerusalem. He's not, his message isn't directed to Israel. His message is directed to the Assyrians in the capital city of Nineveh. His message is directed to the pagans, who are the most violent, bloodthirsty group in the world at this time. When God's prophets go to his covenant people, they reject the word and they kill the prophets. When God's message, through the most reluctant prophet in history goes to the worst people in the face of the world, there's a massive revival. All of those contrasts, again, are supposed to be in your mind when you work through what on earth is the meaning and the message of this particular book. Part of what hurts us in this, of course, is our familiarity with it as well. That that we're so familiar with with associating Jonah with a great big fish. Uh, That's the one thing people remember. Jonah and the whale. Jonah and the fish. You know, we need to move a little bit past this, that Sunday school narrative, as exciting as it is, and sort of enter into what on earth is the book actually about. You'll notice Jonah is swallowed by a great big fish in chapter 2. Chapter 2 is hardly the climax of the story. So the main point is not found in the second chapter. The main point is found in, as the narrative continues, particularly at the end. Now, a couple of macro-level point that obviously I don't have time to work through. It would be profitable to spend a couple of weeks in Jonah, work through sort of chapter by chapter. We're not going to be able to do that. Just a couple of macro level points then. First, the one thing that becomes very clear here is that God has authority over all nations. So God takes his prophet and the prophets are not merely restrained to the borders of Israel. They don't need to preach only in Jerusalem. So God has every right to take his spokesmen and send them to Assyria. It doesn't matter that Assyria has their own gods. It doesn't matter that Assyria has their own religious cultists. The Lord Yahweh is the one God. And because of that, he has jurisdiction over all the nations. That's one of the messages of this book from the very beginning. God has every right to say to his servants, you go anywhere in the world I want you to go, and my word and my message is valid. Because I am the God the Ninevites answer to. Even though they have all of their idols, even though they have all of their deities, they still answer to me. And I am the one who disposes of them in ways that I see fit. God is, the Lord is the God of the wicked city and the wicked pagans. 
However, the messenger, the prophet, is far more reluctant than the God. The missionary has far less of a missionary heart than the Lord. One of the questions that often comes up, and I think this is sort of a, a typical but entirely erroneous interpretation of Joseph, uh, of Joseph, why? Joseph, Jonah, Jonah's psychology. Nineveh was a violent city. Read the book of Nahum, and, and you'll get a, a, a little bit of a flavor of what uh, Nineveh was like. Woe to the city of blood, the cracking of whips, the groaning of slaves. And so this is, a, this is a frightening place to go. So a lot of people say, well, you know, Jonah, he's just scared. He doesn't want to go there. There's personal safety issues and, and all the rest. He doesn't want to go. If he was just braver, you know, then everything would be fine. But he's not scared. I mean, it takes a lot of bravery at one point to say, you know what? The solution here is to throw me overboard into the ocean. Right or into the sea. That takes a little bit of bravery in order to do that. So the problem isn't that he's just scared. You know, the problem isn't that he just needs to tighten up you know, the, the muscles of his courage. You will recall, uh, of course, that, that great uh, theological story, uh, Beauty and the Beast. How many of you, I won't ask how many of you have read the book, how many of you have seen either the, the Disney animated movie or the live action movie? How many of you have seen these? All right, so, so you know uh, the mob song at the end when they're going to go out and they're going to try to kill the beast. You, you recall this. We're not safe until he's dead. He'll come stalking us that night, set to sacrifice our children to his monstrous appetite. He'll wreak havoc on our village if we let him wander free. So it's time to take some action, boys. It's time to follow me. I always think, like, I'm a great leader, so that's me there. You know. Uh, but for better purposes, and then, you know, a big, long spiel, kill the beast. Right. Let your torch, not your horse, Screw your courage to the sticking place. We're counting on Gaston to lead the way. Screw your courage to the sticking place. Great line. Not original to the Disney writers, of course. Uh, that line's in Macbeth. Uh, when Lady Macbeth is trying to get Macbeth to kill the king. Very interesting there, too. The beast is prince and becomes the king. So I actually wonder, I wonder if there's actually some literary layering going on with the Disney writers when they use that line about going out to kill the prince who's the beast. Anyway, so Macbeth is a little bit worried about, uh, you know, he doesn't necessarily know if he wants to kill the king, and so he asks Lady Macbeth, if we should fail. She says, we fail? But screw your courage through the sticking place and will not fail. Is that what Jonah just needs to do? He just need to screw his courage to the sticking place. Just, just be a little bit braver. No, not at all. Jonah doesn't flee because he's scared. He tells you that at the end of the book. Which is why it's a pretty massive mistake to think that's the reason why he does. The reason he flees is because he hates the Assyrians. The reason he flees is he doesn't want them to be saved. He wants them to be damned. He says as much at the end of chapter at the beginning of chapter four. He prayed to the Lord, "Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. Why did he flee to Tarshish? Because he doesn't want the people to be saved. He knows perfectly well that God has a God of mercy. 
that even the proclamation of judgment is contingent on lack of repentance. Even the message, 40 more days and the city will be overthrown, is contingent on the people persevering in their sin and ignoring the prophetic word. But Jonah knows perfectly well that when God gives messages of judgment, when people humble themselves and in repentance and faith seek redemption, God is entirely merciful and gracious. He is a compassionate and a forgiving God. In fact, one of the things that is utterly blasphemous at this point is Jonah says, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. How does Jonah know that? You've heard this language before. This is exceptionally important Old Testament revelation. The Lord God, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. Where have you heard that before? It's not rhetorical. Where have you heard that before? You've heard this with Moses, exactly. Remember when God is going to destroy the people for their rebellion with the golden calf. And, and, and yet, there's intercession, there's pleading. And God says, okay, fine. I'm not, going to, I, I'm not going to send this calamity. I will have mercy on the people. Why? Because Moses, let me tell you who I am. You can't see my face. You can't see my glory. Or you'll be destroyed. But I'll, I'll, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll cover you with my hand. I'll pass by. You can start to see the, the, the afterburners of my glory from behind. I'll proclaim my name to you. The Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God. And Jonah says, oh, how can I go to those people? You're a God who saves. I, this is just like you. This is just like you, God. I knew you were a God of compassion and mercy. That's why I went the other way. This isn't a bravery issue. It's a moral issue. He doesn't go because he hates them. If he had known that he would have been the spokesman to proclaim their damnation and they would be destroyed, he would have delighted to go. The reason I didn't want to come is precisely because of your covenant nature as a forgiving God. The amazing thing about this, well, there's, there's a lot. But one of the amazing things about this is that even on route, and this is where the fish comes in, God has specially and miraculously delivered Jonah from his own sin. So this isn't just about his history with God's mercy to Israel, although that's part of it. There wouldn't be a Jonah. When he says, I'm a Hebrew, in chapter 1, the reason that there were Hebrews was precisely because God didn't destroy them back in the wilderness. So the only reason Jonah is alive, literally, is because God is a God of grace and compassion and mercy. And he dares to resent God. When God extends that grace and mercy to other people. It's the only reason he exists as a, it's the only reason that his race exists historically. And it's the only reason that he exists particularly. He was just thrown into the sea. 
because of his revolt against God. Now, here's another thing that's just amazing about Jonah. At the end of chapter 1, what are all these pagan sailors doing? Verse 16, At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Jonah is the only prophet in all of the world who can't help but get people saved. Even when he's trying not to. Even when he's trying to pronounce damnation. Even when he's trying to drown. People are getting saved. Like, all these pagan sailors. Oh my goodness. Like this guy, it must be, it's really the Lord. And they're sacrificing the Lord. They're offering, you know, they're giving offerings to the Lord. They're making vows to the Lord. And all they did was throw Jonah into the sea and they get saved. Like this is like you can't make this up. I mean, it's absolutely incredible in terms of the success. God is going to use Jonah to bring the nations to saving faith. And that's actually something which should be, in a, you know, in a strange way, encouraging to us at one level. At one level, not every level, but at one. The Lord can use people who really morally aren't quite up to snuff in comparison to the task God has called them to do and the message God has called them to deliver. God is not dependent on us arriving at a certain level of goodness before he can use us. He can use us, because the truth of the matter is, I mean, let, let's, just, let's just pretend it's not Sunday morning for a moment, where we all have to be saintly. Let's be honest. If God truly had to wait for all of us to sort of, to be up to, to spiritual par before he used us. The reality is, none of us would see anything good done ever in our lives through us. None of us. Part of the reality is we simply have no concept, because we don't know what we don't know. We have no concept of how far we fall short of God's glory. We just don't understand. And, and, and part, of, part of the way you can tell how blind we are is on most days we think we're doing okay. But, but that's just a clear sign if you had eyes to see, you're not. <laughs> you know? I mean, this is God. How much does God deserve? What, what are his standards? And yet, incredibly, he still uses us. Shockingly. In spite of our failures, in spite of our sin. Now listen, I, I'm not saying that oh, this, is a, this is a great reason to go and be Jonah. But God's sovereignty outruns even our human frailties and failures. And that should drive us to God, not away from Him. Right? Like that, that, that should call us closer to God. That, that, that should lure us to Him. And yet one of the things you learn about Jonah is that, that God can honor His word. You know, God can speak prophetically through Jonah. God can speak prophetically through Balaam's donkey. God's, when God's word goes out, it can go out with power regardless of the source. And in chapter 2, with this fish, Jonah metaphorically dies and is buried. So it becomes an analog that Jesus will use for his own death and burial and resurrection. As Jonah was three days in the belly of the whale, so the Son of Man will be three days in the belly of the earth. And notice the language that Jonah uses as he's praying, as he's praising God. At the end, verse 9, I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. 
What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. That's his message. Rejoicing in it. Salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah loves God's grace. Jonah revels in God's saving grace. Ah, here I am. Sinner, unclean, thrown overboard, deserving of death, and God has saved my life. Oh, God. Salvation comes from you. My God saves. My Lord saves. And that's fine. As long as it's me. But God, there are some people in this world I don't like overly much. I prefer you didn't save them. One of the shocking things here is the bifurcation of Jonah's spirit or mind. In a way, I don't think he probably sees as hypocritical. For him, I think here, he legitimately rejoices that the Lord saves. And he sees no inconsistency with over here cursing God because the Lord saves. The, the, the split here is shocking, except exemplified in a lot of our lives, too. Yes, theoretically, we're happy that God's a God of grace. And, and probably, probably most of us genuinely want people to experience the grace and mercy of God. But we also want them to suffer a little bit for the wrong that they've done to us. We want mercy. But just enough room in that mercy for a pound of flesh, too. We want grace. But we also, quote-unquote, don't want them to get away with it. And when we feel that, it's almost never because we actually want justice. It's because we want to inflict pain. We want to strike back. We've been hurt in some way. We want that other person to know what it feels like. In mercy, of course. That's Jonah. Lord, sincerely on his knees, thank you for your grace. As long as it's for me and people like me. But not for them. Lord, do you know what they've done? Do you know what those people are like? Do you know what that subculture in our society stands for? Do you know the subversion of values that that, that group is responsible for? Do, do you know that, that that person didn't vote for the party I voted for? Or whatever. No, we're, we're very good at promising we love God's grace, and yet the application and extension of it is very different in practice for a lot of us. 
Interestingly enough, we know the greatest commandments is to love the Lord your God, hold your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. I don't know which feeds into which, in which order precisely, but it's interesting here that rather than loving his neighbor, the Assyrian, Jonah despises his neighbor. Jonah resents his neighbor. And in so doing, ends up despising and resenting God. Be very careful. You love God, you'll love your neighbor. You bitterly resent your neighbor, you may come to bitterly resent God too. Why? Because God doesn't. That person you hate is the person God loves. That person you want to see suffer, just injustice, of course, not vengeance. That person you want to see suffer, get their comeuppance. Comeuppance is a great word. It's fantastic. I don't know why I just said that. Uh, To get their just dessert, uh, or whatever. God wants to save that person in grace. God wants to bathe that person in love. God wants to heal that person. God is a God of compassion and mercy and grace. what he is. And if you're not, at least towards some, then you will resent when God is. Because you want God to treat them the way you want them to be treated. Now, God provides various things for Jonah. He provides a plant. Then the same word, he provides a worm that eats the plant. Then the same word, he provides a scorching wind. And I'm not sure how many of you have ever actually been somewhere where you've been really, really hot. It's really unpleasant. And so Jonah's in a place where he's dehydrated, he's tired, he's exhausted mentally and physically and spiritually. I mean, like, like don't forget, like, no matter how you sort of parse it out, um, like, like, I don't know, probably it's not pleasant to be in the belly of a whale, right? <laughs> and to be vomited out and then to go preach to a bunch of people you don't like and then to, to go sit in, in the desert and, and, and get heat stroke. Like, that's, that's not a fun collection of days. And so he's bitter, and he wants to die. But the Lord provided all of these things. The Lord provided the plant. The providence of God! The worm is as much as part of the providence of God as the plant. As is the scorching wind. And Jonah is so angry with God, he's will, he wants to die. God says, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Now, this would seem to be the kind of question that if God asks you, you're supposed to think before you speak. And the answer is probably no. It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. That's the last thing Jonah says in the book. There's no resolution in this book at all. The book ends with a question. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? That's how the book ends. A question from God. The last thing Jonah says, I'm so angry I wish I was dead because of the plant. God says, and today, I mean, without being facetious, 
today, God might say to us, depending on our mood and depending on the day, do you really, you're pretty angry about that flat tire. You're pretty angry about that long line at Tim Hortons. You're really angry about the internet being out. You're really angry about your neighbor playing loud music. You're really angry about whatever. Why are you so much more upset about those collection of things than you are that there are two billion people in the world who have never heard the name of Jesus? When's the last time you were upset about that? You're more upset about these trivial things in your life. You're more upset about things that line up with your comfort or lack of comfort than you are that, you know, that there are child sex slaves around the world, including in this city. When's the last time you're upset about that? You know, and we go, oh, no, I'm, I can throw a pity party. I can, I can throw a tantrum because of whatever. All, the, all these first world problems. God says, well, well, yeah, good. You know, maybe it's good that you can be angry. Maybe it's good that you have some human emotion, but channel in the right direction. See the world through my eyes, Jonah. See that city? You see the number of people in that city? You care about this plant. You don't care about them. You hate them. You love this plant more than those people. What is wrong with you? There's a fascinating ecological comment and many animals. It's fascinating there. It's not just the people, it's the animals. It's, it's the whole, it's all of God's creation. Well, the book of Jonah ends with God bringing about an enormous revival through the worst prophet in history. To the point where the repentance is so overdone, they even put the animals in sackcloth. Like, like that's, that's, that's a bit much. It's the most successful repentance in the world. With the least, with the least likely candidates, the Assyrians. With the worst prophet ever. And the book ends with a question, because the question is not for Jonah, it's for you. Do you care, truly? Do your priorities show that you care about reaching the world. Do you truly rejoice in the grace of God? Do you truly rejoice that the Lord saves? Or is that a privatized thing for you? You're glad it's you. But the rest of the world can go to hell. Or do you truly care? Does the way you spend your money show that as a priority? Does the way you live your life show that as a priority? Do you have the heartbeat of God? to reach the world. Very simply, you have to understand this. And this is why Jonah really is a heck of a Christmas story. What greater contrast could you ever ask for than the prophet Jonah and the Messiah Jesus? If it was about Jonah, there would be no Christmas. But God's Son comes to us. He comes for us. He doesn't say, Father, 
you know what? I was going to be born of a virgin. I was going to be born and laid in the manger. I was going to grow up and die. But you know what? I just hate those people. The reason I'm not going to earth is because you'll say them. You're a gracious and compassionate God. No, the son rejoices in God's character. He, he glories in the plan of redemption. He glories in God's graciousness and his compassion. And, and the son delights to be born into this world. He wants to come to us. He wants to be born into a global Nineveh to redeem and to save and to find the lost and to change the world. Every tribe, every tribe, there's, there isn't a single people group. There's no language. There's no ethnicity in all of the world or in all of the world's history that's not been loved by the Son of God. He, he's come to redeem people from every walk of life, every demographic, every place around the world. There is no Nineveh that Jesus says, I'm not going there. He is a global savior. He's born for the world. The only reason we are saved is because Jesus is not Jonah. Jesus is God. The gracious and compassionate God. Also, you know this. What does the word Jesus mean? The Lord saves. Jonah 2.9, I will say salvation comes from the Lord. I will say the Lord saves. Jonah says, my message is Jesus. He doesn't know that, of course. But the irony is palpable in terms of New Testament fulfillment. Oh, I've been saved by Jesus. I'm going to tell everyone about Jesus except those people. No, none of that. No, for those who really know the Lord saves, for those who know our Savior Jesus, we tell everyone. Look, I, I want to tell you this, and this is just this is just personal to me. You know, one of the things I really want to try to do this year, this this upcoming year, honestly, I really want to try to understand what it means to represent God's grace. I think I'm reasonably good at being judgmental. I think I'm awfully good at being legalistic. I'm awfully good at, at wanting people to learn their lessons. But I think something I need to learn is how radical this grace of God is. The type of heart that God has for the lost. Indiscriminate love. I think it would be pretty great to be part of a community where we weren't like Jonah at all. Where we were really like Jesus. Holding up the grace and compassion of God. That's something I want to learn to do a little bit more than I ever have. Because God is a gracious and compassionate God. That's why the Lord saves. That's why there's Jesus. That's why there's Christmas. I'm asking musicians to come and lead us in a closing song.